0: Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle's personal finance podcast. I'm Moira O'Neill and joining me in the studio today are my colleagues Leonora Walters and Kate Beerley. We're also delighted to welcome special guest Patrick Connolly, a certified financial planner with Chase DeVere. And we have Chris Dillow, the Investors Chronicles economist, on the line. Now, today we're going to be talking about premium bonds, investment trusts, including the new trusts that focus on peer-to-peer loans, and we'll also touch on using exchange-traded funds to create income for your portfolio. Investors can put an additional £10,000 into premium bonds as the limit has risen from £40,000 to £50,000. Now, premium bonds offer the chance to win tax-free prizes of between £25 a month up to the £1 million jackpot, of which there are two. And everyone likes the idea of winning a million pounds. But over the years, I've heard from lots of investors who report stashing their money away for several years without winning any prizes. Chris, would you put money into premium bonds?
1: Not only would I, I have done so. I've, I've had 30,000, which was the maximum when I, um, when I opened the account for, for some years. Personally, I find that on average I get pretty close to um, the rate that's adver- advertised. Uh, right, and, so- that, that, and, and that's a, a statistical fact, um, that the more money you have invested in premium bonds, the more likely your luck is to be average.
0: Right. So so that's been I mean overall you're getting the interest rate that's advertised on premium bonds which um is uh 1.35%. Um which is not it's not it's not massive but um you know have you ever won any big prizes Chris?
1: No, never. Um I I get I get the odd 100 pounds. Um but uh, but I live in hope and and therein I think lies the virtue of premium bonds in that they give us the chance of the positive black swan event. You know, the very small probability of a life-changing sum of money. And there's a difference here between premium bonds and shares in that in the stock market, if you're looking for really big upside, you often pay a horrible price in average returns for that. And specul- Because speculative shares tend to underperform the market. And just look how AIM has done ever since the mid-90s. But in the case of premium bonds, the loss you incur in exchange for the tiny chance of a massive win is actually quite small, because you're only sacrificing about 1% of returns on premium bonds relative to um, a reasonable cash savings account. So, so you've got a small loss in exchange for the tiny chance of a big win. And for some of us, that's quite attractive as a matter of fun,
0: Mm-hmm. Now, Pat- Patrick, ha- how would you use um, premium bonds as part of a portfolio? Do you do you mean? Do you recommend them to your
2: clients? We 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 do. I I agree with what Chris was saying. I mean, personally, I have a very small holding in premium bonds, but but we have many clients who are up nearer at the maximums. And when the maximum went from thirty thousand to forty thousand last June, um, over two hundred thousand people, customers of ns and I, have now gone up to that level. So that just shows how popular they are. Um, We we do use them with with, with a fair number of clients. Of course, there are no guarantees, but as Chris rightly points out, if you've got a higher amount invested and over the longer term, you are more likely to be closer to the average.
0: And of course, the the capital is guaranteed, isn't it, because there are... They're written by the Treasury, you know. The, yeah. So, so there's a very it's a very safe place to hold your money.
2: Yeah.
0: Even if you don't win anything, you the, can still get that that money back.
2: That's correct. And as as Chris points out, at the moment, with savings rates being so low anyway, um, and clearly with inflation being very low or, or minus at at the moment as well, people don't feel as if they're losing out, even if they are in less than the 1.35 um, average return.
0: Oh, great. Um, so that's, that's something to consider if you haven't already um, owned any, any
1: premium bonds. Yeah, can I just add one thing here? Yeah, of course. And that's, um, that I, I don't know if this is true for other people, I suspect it is, but it's certainly true for me. And there's there's a mental accounting um, thing going on with premium bonds, such that if I win £50 in a month on premium bonds, you know, I feel really happy about it. Whereas I could make or lose that that amount 20 times over on an average day in the stock market. And it doesn't affect me at all. So I think a lot of us regard premium bonds as a sort of you know, fun account, and we can take our prizes uh, and, and spend them on something nice. And in that sense, um, premium bonds are, as it were, a separate part of our investments. Now, logically speaking, that's completely irrational. But it's how I think of premium bonds, and I suspect it's how lots of other people do. And I think that increases their attractiveness.
0: All right. So they're not um, pure investments that you, in the sense that you would look at them, in the same way you look at your your stocks and shares portfolio. They're sort of more the the fun side of investing.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think of a fifty pound premium bond win as completely different from a fifty pound gain. On equities
0: mm. I mean is that, is that because it because you get it in the post or um I mean, how did they do it maybe they do it online now both, don't they both. do both um it's just um and then you would go out and spend that money happily chris yeah
1: yeah <laughs> it, it, it's fifty pounds for certain, whereas a fifty pound gain a, a, on equities could could be more than lost the following day mm,
0: yes that's great um I mean on the subject of equities, moving on um Investment Trust fans in particular are going to enjoy this week's magazine because we've got three very meaty pieces on Investment Trust. We've got John Barron's popular column um, and we have um, a, a big theme um, in the funds section and we also have our Portfolio Clinic which this week is featuring a 65-year-old investor who's funding Retirement Fund, the fund is coming into investing his retirement fund via a portfolio of 19 investment trusts. Now, Chris, you had a look at this portfolio. <clears throat> what, what are the issues with holding so many trusts? Um, it, you know, he yeah, had, had 19, I think, and, and you, were, you were a bit worried about the risks here.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a simple mathematical fact about portfolio formation, and that is if you have a bundle of stocks then you're diversifying away a lot of stock-specific risk, but you're taking on market risk. Any basket of stocks is likely to rise and fall as the general market rises and falls. And this means that if you own two or three or four or more investment trusts, you're adding market risk. And this is especially the case if, uh, as our reader is doing you're investing in a particular segment of the investment trust market, such, such as income stocks. You know, there's a limited number of income stocks around, and investment trusts who invest for income tend tend to buy the same ones. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a danger of. Um, not diversifying sufficiently.
0: I think I think the, what you did point out a, a few um, points of overlap in his portfolio, didn't you? That he he may not realise that some invest, some of these trusts are investing in the, have some of the same top holdings, and, and that that's something which um, investors need to watch generally, even if the whole, whether they're holding funds or investment trusts, to make sure that they're not duplicating holdings that they might also have in their direct share portfolio. Um, Patrick, Patrick, do you think um, the invest, uh, investor would be right to concentrate a whole portfolio on investment trusts? And-
2: uh, in, in most circumstances, no. Um, this situation is slightly different. In, the, in This particular investor has a large guaranteed pension, so they can afford to take a fairly high degree of investment risk. Uh, for most people, investment trusts can certainly have a role in a portfolio, but for most people, need to look at asset allocation. They need to spread and diversify risks, and it's easier to diversify risks with certainly with other asset classes such as fixed interest or, or property with open-ended funds. Because investment trusts, even though they may invest in those areas, are still going to be more highly correlated to the stock market. So it it is very much case by case and and um, individual specific. But I, I I think it would be very unusual if somebody's whole investment portfolio was just in investment trusts.
0: I mean, this this chap um, had a specific case in that he's sixty five and he has a very very good index linked pension, as does his wife. So they've got secure, comfortable income coming in anyway, and that, that meant that he could, he felt he could afford yeah. to be high risk and, and in and that's yep. and therefore talk about this portfolio as having a bit of fun with his investments as well. Chris, do you, did you think that was right? Uh, right that he she should be focusing on high risk holdings.
1: Well, how how much risk you take is ultimately a matter of taste. It's Mm -hmm. a matter of what you feel comfortable with. There's one point I'd add about investment trusts, and that is that they carry a double risk, which is sentiment risk. Mm -hmm. So that when the market falls, what tends to happen is not only does the net asset value of the investment trust fall, but also discounts tend to widen. Um, so, So in that sense, you get a double kick down on, on your investment trust holdings. Now, in good times, of course, you know, that, that works in your favour because not only does net asset value go up, but also dis- discounts, discounts decline or, or premium increase. Um, and it, it's often very worthwhile taking account of moves in discounts, an unusually wide discount can be a buying opportunity because it signals that investor sentiment is abnormally depressed. And conversely, an abnormally compressed discount relative to the trust's history uh, can be a sign that the the market is overpriced.
0: I mean, uh, talking of uh, sentiment, um, one of the biggest investment trust launches um – uh, has been Neil Woodford's patient capital investment trust this year. And, Chris, you looked at this and in terms of the the manager's reputation and the the number of investors flocking into it. Were they, were they right to do that?
1: I suspect they might be. And I think people are missing a point here. And that is that what Neil Woodford's got going for him isn't simply his ability, but also his reputation. And if you're investing in private equity in very small unquoted stocks, um, a manager's reputation matters a lot. Um, and the reason for that is simply that if a small very small company has a high profile backer he can it can use that backing as a way of attracting finance from other sources as a way of uh, attracting better quality staff, which are often crucial for a very small human capital-intensive company. And in that sense, having the right backer increases your chances of success. And this is consistent with a finding by some guys at Saeed Business School in Oxford. And they've shown that private equity funds that do well in one period tend to carry on doing well in the next. Now, that's not the case for ordinary equity managers. Um, And what this suggests to me is that reputation matters a lot in private equity. It's a means through which past success can lead to future success. Patrick,
0: um, how did you view the launch of patient capital investment trust by Neil Woodford that invests in private equity?
2: Yeah, obviously it's taken a lot of money in on the basis of Woodford's reputation and also clearly it was very, very heavily promoted by the large execution only brokers as well. So there's a lot of people out there saying lots of positive things about him and the trust. It's not one we've used for clients. We think that it is higher risk than perhaps many people who have gone into it appreciate, and higher risk than other funds that Woodford's run in the past, and and so it's not something that we that we've used. I accept the point that Chris has made about repu- manager's reputation, but of course that still is no guarantee. I mean, you only need to look at I mean, not private equity side, but Anthony Bolton's reputation before before he disappeared to China and how that worked out as well. So yes, there is potential impact there. But there are certainly no guarantees, and and distrust may well be higher risk than some people appreciate.
0: Um, so people need to be clear about what they're they're investing in, don't they? But what what Chris is saying does, does make sense in terms of the specific asset class, the private equity, mm-hmm. where reputation has a, has an ed, yep. can give your manager an edge. Um, Okay, also on the subject of investment trusts, this week, Leonora Walters has been looking at the investment trusts that focus on investing in peer-to-peer loans. Now, um, Leonora, it's early days for these products, really. Most of them have launched within the last year, but why should investors be looking at them?
3: Offering something, I I suppose, a bit new – I think maybe the the main attraction with them is the returns and yield. They're targeting a higher dividend and total returns than some of the existing listed debt funds. P2P Global Investments, for example, is looking at a dividend of 6 to 8% a year on the issue price and VPC on one of about 8%. It's also a different kind of debt, so I suppose it could diversify your portfolio, which is always helpful. And they have quite a short duration as well, which is um useful in um, you know, a possible rate rising environment. But it's always, you know, there's always um the flip side, I think they're certainly not a low risk option. They obviously subject to default like any sort of debt focused investments. They also have really quite high charges and analysts have raised eyebrows here. So, you know, kinda of like it's management fee performance fee, no hurdle on the performance fee, and they're also moving up to premiums already, which could fall down to discounts for a number of reasons, for example, a rise in default, a rise in interest rates, so it's certainly not for, let's say, cautious investors and certainly not a core part of your portfolio, I think perhaps investors who have a lot of assets and maybe want around the edges to have something a little bit Mm -hmm. different to complement sort of a fixed income allocation might be able to consider them as you know people aren't very keen on corporate bonds at the moment the um the peer-to-peer loan
0: industry people might be familiar with that in terms of you know you can you can go and get a slightly better rate from a bank by lending your money to to peers and and you know therefore these these trusts are actually investing in that kind of offering but obviously they're very different vehicles to actual peer-to-peer lending aren't they so um it is is it something that you've 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 looked at, Patrick?
2: We we've looked at it, and clearly peer to peer is incredibly popular and becoming more and more popular. Um, the main attraction clearly is is the interest rates, w- w- which are significantly higher than you can get through bank and building society accounts. But that's because these investments are higher risk than bank and building society accounts as well. And there, there is a potential risk that as the asset class becomes even more popular and we get more launches coming through and more products and, and more offerings coming, that the quality could be could be diluted as well. From an investment trust perspective, there, there are a few, and this is really a fledging industry or a fledging, fledging um, opportunity to invest. Um, what it does is it gives you an opportunity to diversify your peer-to-peer holdings. It also takes the selection away from you as well because you're relying on somebody else to do that. But it is a new asset class. We haven't seen how it performs during the difficult times yet. And as Leonora pointed out, you're paying additional charges if you're selecting the investment trust wrapper as well. So there are goods and bads. Uh, I, I would agree with the sentiment that Leonora has put forward in that if you're using it in a portfolio, it's likely to be a pretty small amount.
0: Yeah. Um, great stuff. Well, um, that they 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 were giving those peer to peer loan investment trusts were giving quite high yields, weren't they? And also on the theme. Potential yeah, yields from so
3: ye- you um, yes. it, we yet to see how it pans out. They seem to be on track so far. So they were targeting so, high um, yields and that's why they're popular. Yeah, I mean yes. one of them P 2 P Global Investments is one year old and it seems to be delivering. The others are literally launched this year, so um I think it remains to be seen if it can deliver on their promises.
0: I mean, one one thing you said, I think one of the experts you spoke to in the article said you you could consider having a little bit in all four just to, to, um, you
3: you know, we don't know whether, you know, who's going to be successful, who's doing what. And they are all doing something a little bit different to each other. So it might be a way to spread your risk, I suppose. Great. On the theme of income, some,
0: some more ideas coming up in the magazine because Kate Beerley has been updating our two portfolios that generate income using exchange traded funds. These are low cost passive vehicles that are traded on the stock market. And we launched the portfolios in January. So five months on. Um, Kate has been looking at how they have been performing. Kate.
4: Yeah, we decided to launch these two model ETF portfolios at the beginning of the year. Yeah, because we wanted to see how two kind of investment experts would put together a very low-cost uh, portfolio to give income and a bit of capital growth as well for either someone in retirement, someone thinking about retirement. So we asked Alan Miller, who's founder and chief investment officer at SCM Private, and Paul Taylor, who's managing director at McCarthy Taylor for their advice. Now, the two portfolios that came out were quite different. So Alan Miller's is slightly higher risk. It's got a few more, well, it's got more UK equities and overseas equities than Mr. Taylor's, which is more kind of index-linked gilts and more corporate bond ETFs. So interesting to see which one is performing best. Obviously, it's early days and we're going to be looking at this over quite a long time period. But so far, Alan Miller is, is beating <laughs> beating Paul um, with a slightly higher return of 4.4% um, um, between February and, and May. And Paul Taylor's has returned 3.3%. So both kind of doing okay, both on track. Um, and they're generating capital growth as well as income. Is that right? Yes, because yes. well, um, that's the total return. So that is the capital growth that you're getting, and then these are also paying out income. Um, the majority are distributing share classes; some not, and their argument is that you know you should be kind of reinvesting and and taking taking income know as, as you see fit but um,
0: so are our experts sticking with their holdings or are they making any changes well um, it's,
4: it's interesting because I mean the first thing to bear in mind is that they're, they're reticent to make too many changes because obviously every time you make changes to a portfolio you've got dealing costs to think about so you don't want to kind of make too many unnecessary tweaks there's something they're not changing is is the best performing ETF which is the wisdom tree Europe small cap dividend um, and that's in Alan Miller's portfolio and it's, it's done really well um, the ETF has returned fourteen um, wow. percent since in that time. How's, so it, how's
0: it done? That Do we know what the
4: well, I mean, reasons were. I mean, it's a small, it's a smart beta strategy. So for a start, there's there's an argument to say that it that has been successful. It basically is comprised of the bottom twenty five percent of um, market cap of European companies in this Wisentree index, um, and then it hones in on companies with high dividends. Um, basically. Uh, so there's an argument that that's worked quite well. It could also be um, a kind of nascent European recovery as it's been good for um small cap end of the market in Europe. I mean, there's no guarantee it will continue delivering that. And that's a short time period, but still, you know, impressive compared to the, to the others. But yeah, the worst performers have all been bond ETFs, which is kind of no surprise as, as bond yields have, have really been spiking in, in recent months. Um, there's a lot of nervousness around rate rises in the UK and the US. And QE has, has kind of impacted that as well, people pushing money out of bonds into, into high-yielding equities and things. So there's a lot of those ETFs that haven't done well. But uh, the, Mr Taylor, Mr Miller weren't keen to kind of, you know, just take all of those out, obviously, because A, you need diversification, so you need some of these bond ETFs. Um, and B, you know, good chance that that will turn around. The things they did change, so Mr Taylor reduced exposure to two of those bond ETFs to make way for iShares MSCI World Hedged ETF, so adding a bit more global equity exposure. He's quite nervous about currencies, so he's he's gone for the hedged option there. And he's also added a real estate ETF as a kind of yield play. It's quite interesting, obviously um, real estate being quite a high yielding area, so ETFs are quite an interesting way to access that at low cost. Uh, in terms of the changes that Mr. Miller's made, he's made changes based on kind of ongoing charge and also yield. So, switched from a DBX trackers product tracking the FTSE All Share into a Spider One with a lower ongoing charge. Also, moved out of emerging market corporate bond ETF into an emerging market bond ETF with um, a high yield. And finally, he's um, switched iShares core emerging markets ETF to a spider ETF, which also tracks emerging markets, but small cap. The idea there is faster-growing companies. He thinks that could be kind of more exciting, so maybe that, was a, that was a bit
0: tactical there, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, Chris, you're, you're a fan of exchange-traded funds. Why, why do you love them so
1: much? Quite simply, low fees plus, plus trackers, so that they are cheap, no-thought portfolios
0: um and, and i mean you you like to sort of um invest in things and and hold them for the long time you wouldn't be, i doubt you would be making so many tactical changes four months into a portfolio is that right
1: i i would prefer not to no um one thing i would stress here though is that any high income comes with extra risks and one one especial risk here is, is simply cyclical risk And European small caps have done well because the risk of recession has declined. But if the risk of recession were to increase, that would go into reverse. Now, the problem there is that recessions are, to a very large extent, unpredictable. And that means you're taking on an unpredictable risk. And I think that's something for income investors generally to watch out for, not least because an economic downturn would hurt not just um, small caps and, and cyclical stocks, but also other sources of income, such such, such as real estate, buy-to-let.
0: In general, um, in income, you're saying, comes at a price. Is that right?
1: Generally speaking, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the price is often cyclical risk, sometimes liquidity risk. The fact that you can't, can't sell stuff very quickly, that, that's, a, that's a problem for property. Another point I'd stress, is that income stocks fall into, generally speaking, two different categories. One is that they can be risky cyclicals. The other is that they, some of them can be low-growth defensives. Um, think of utilities, for example, or tobacco stocks. And I would much prefer the latter than the, than the former. And that would be especially the case on a longer-term view, where where the probability of recession increases,
0: Patrick. On the subject of income, what what risks mm. do you tell your clients about?
2: Yeah, I mean the the point Chris made was was the one I was going to make as well. In in very simple terms, regardless of the the wrapper you're using, if you're generating a higher level of income, you're likely to be taking more risk in order to do that. Uh, one one other point I would make as well in terms of costs, ETFs clearly are and should be low cost. But if you have small individual holdings, you need to bear in mind there are dealing costs as well, particularly if you are regularly dealing or, or rebalancing your portfolio. So you need to take that into account as well if you've got smaller amounts or you're doing lots of short term tactical trades.
0: Yeah, and it's all right if you've got a big lump sum to put into an ETF. And, and it,
2: you're a long term holder. Yeah, yeah,
0: but if you are doing, you wanting to do £50 pounds a month, it might not be suitable. Is that Well, e- 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 e-
2: even just a couple of thousand pounds in, in each individual ETF, again, if, if you're moving those around, you've got dealing costs as well, which eat into it. But if you've got large, Terms, longer terms the, the cost benefits are, are that much greater
0: okay so i mean the costs are the are the thing that investors mm-hmm. really have to keep tabs on mm-hmm. don't they because you, they're the one thing you can control um chris how, how important are costs
1: i think they're incredibly important especially for the longer term investor um remember the power of compounding it's you know one of the most powerful laws in finance and remember that dealing costs and management fees compound uh, uh, as well and that's why a lot of fund managers are very rich <laughs>
0: <laughs> now on the subject of um of fund managers kate has this week been looking at multi asset funds now these are um are growing in popularity that fund managers are able to move money between asset classes in these funds to potentially ride out market volatility. Kate, do you think they deserve investors' attention?
4: Have you drawn any conclusions? Well, yeah, I mean, I was looking at this because it's the anniversary of two of Artemis fairly new multi-asset funds. So yeah, I was going to look at at performance and kind of have a look at how that compares to other sectors, taking into account costs as well. Um, So the first one I looked at was Artemis monthly distribution fund. Which aims to give income and capital growth. So it has done very well in in the three years it's it's been around compared to its sector, it comes out on top. So um, it's in the investment associations mixed investment twenty to sixty percent share sector, and it's beaten well, the average. That
0: refers to the amount that twenty to sixty refers to the amount of equities,
4: doesn't yeah. it? That, that yeah. the managers allowed to hold in the yeah portfolio. That's right. yeah, yes. So that's returned over 50% since since launch in May 2012 compared to 28.3% for the sector. So on the surface of it, that sounds quite good, doesn't it? But then um, when you look at other sectors, when you're thinking about total return, that's maybe not that appealing. Um, I mean, the sector averaged 28.3% um, in kind of three years. In three years, FTSE All Shares returned over 50%, 537 so you kind of start to think, is is this such a such a good sector in in that sense, and particularly when these multi-assets aren't that cheap. Um, so you buy them for ongoing charges around 0.8, um, 0.9, and then compare that to a, to a tracker, something like Vanguard FTSE All Share Tracker Fund, 0.08. And you start to wonder whether you know is it the way to go? And I mean, in some senses, that's not that's not a fair comparison because obviously these funds are designed to protect your capital and that you know to ride out volatility and give income. But when you're just looking at kind of capital growth, total return, other sectors have performed much better than than this one.
0: Patrick, do you do you use multi asset funds? I mean,
2: we do. Um, for for most of our clients, we adopt a multi asset approach step one and and certainly in terms of funds we've seen lots of new funds being launched, lots of new funds being promoted. Most of that's tying in with the new pension rules as well and so they're being put forward as a one size fits all almost solution to those. So that's Uh, for
0: people wanting to generate retirement income they're being recommended these multi-asset funds. They're they're certainly being launched and and, and I'm sure some of them
2: are being recommended as well. Um, our, our, Our approach in terms of the funds themselves we would tend to use them for clients with smaller portfolios in order to achieve diversification Um, with them or if we've got people who really aren't interested in in sort of monitoring or or keeping on top of their investments on an ongoing basis you do need and as um, Kate pointed out you do need to look out for charges with these especially if they adopt a multi-manager approach because you have two layers of charges and especially, especially if you're buying these from an advisor who is selling their own products. Um, it's a bit like buying petrol in a service station on the motorway. You'll pay more if, if, if you're dealing direct with these people. For, for most clients, though, we would prefer to get the multi-asset approach through a range of underlying investments. And that way we can tailor those to the specific requirements of our clients rather than just, just an off the peg, one size fits, fits all solution for them.
0: Chris, any thoughts on managers managing assets across a range of uh, different funds or assets and packaging it up and selling it on to investors? What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think, I think Patrick's last point there w- 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 was a good one in that, you know, you can, as an ordinary investor, decide for yourself how much risk you want to take. And you can, therefore, split your money between cash, bonds and equities according to your own risk preference. The only case for trusting that job to a fund manager is if you think that the fund manager has some ability to predict which asset class will outperform. Now, I'm not sure that there's much short-term predictability in, in asset returns. There is some predictability over longer-term horizons, such as three years, but the things that make asset returns predictable are things that you can exploit yourself. You know, look at keep an eye on dividend yields, keep an eye on consumption wealth ratios, and and so on. So I, I'm not sure that the fees that fund managers charge for this process actually justify themse- justify themselves.
0: Well, that's an interesting thought on which to finish. Thank you very much. So thanks for my, to my um, special guest Patrick Connolly of Chase to Fear. And to Chris Dillow, Leonora Walters and Kate Bearley, you can read more about premium bonds, investment trusts and exchange traded funds in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening.
3: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.